Gestalt language processing. I get questions every single week, probably for the past two years about Gestalt language processing. And this is our first time really talking about it here on the podcast. I had a really uh, great conversation with Sari Risen. She is a duly certified speech therapist and BCBA. And we talk all about what is Gestalt language processing? Um, it's something that has taken, I feel like, Instagram, TikTok, social media by storm probably the past two years. Um, two years ago, I talked to Alex, who had created the Meaningful Speech course, and she let me into that course. I kind of wanted to see what it was about because so many people were talking about it. It's about 10 hours of content. And um, and Sari has actually taken um, Marge LeBlanc's course, which actually is 15 hours on, on Gestalt language processing. And um, we just talk about where it all kind of started and why we think it's become so very popular. We talk about um, what evidence or lack thereof for um, support as far as research is out there for Gestalt language processing. So if you want an introduction to this or you're kind of critically thinking about this theory because it is coming up so much, I think that you'll enjoy this conversation. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Welcome to the podcast today. We have an amazing guest. We have with us Sari Risen. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and I feel like we've just been in the same kind of circle of friends online. It's a small little group of us, SLP, yeah. BCBAs. And, um, and so I've heard your name and probably have been on some Zoom calls with you, but we've never really met. So I'm excited to have you on today, um, just really to learn about your journey. I always think it's fascinating to hear about um, why people would want to be duly certified. And if you're listening and you're, you're not sure how unique that is, there are less than 550 people in the entire world who are both a speech therapist and BCBA. And I always say I'm trying to meet every single person so I can check you off my list that we met today. Yay. Um, so tell us a little bit about you, your journey into the field and, you know, what you're up to now. Yeah. Um, so going into university, I knew I wanted to do something in the healthcare field, something that would combine physiology, biology with, with psychology. Um, I thought maybe medicine and maybe speech pathology. So I had those kind of in my mind going in. Um, I had always worked with kids or like since I was a little, a, a young teenager. Um, and through that, I started working with kids with special needs. And one of them had PDDNOS, which now we would call autism. Mm -hmm. Um and I loved it, but didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then um, during my uh, university, that, that was actually in high school. So I had my first kiddo um, or first individual with autism when I was 17 or 16. Um, I also did some groups there and or social skills groups. And it turns out when I think back, it, they were ABA based groups. But I guess because the word wasn't really out there then, um, I think my boss just hadn't bothered telling me. He probably wouldn't. He thought I wouldn't understand what ABA was. So mm -hmm. he trained me in ABA, but I didn't know that that's what it was. Um, and then I got really interested in ABA during my undergrad when I was working with a child with Down syndrome at a camp. Um, and I loved it. At the end of the summer, I was like, ooh, if this, because, you know, when I had thought of speech pathology, I, I didn't really know what I would do in speech pathology. But I realized, like, ooh, if I could help um individuals um with, with these um difficulties make such 
great gains in their life through teaching them skills. That would be so cool. So my mom, um, shout out to Anona Zimmerman, Dr. Anona Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. My mom was doing her PhD in psychology at the time, and her friend, Dr. Anona Zimmerman, um, was uh, a colleague of hers, and was like, "Oh, ABA, you could you could do that now, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. behavior techs at, at the time we called ourselves um, instructor therapists, but um, you don't need you know a master's degree to do that. And so, oh, I can start that right now, and that that's what got me interested initially in in ABA and um, my, I then got a job with kids with autism doing ABA again. I, I didn't get a, because I was so part-time, didn't get a lot of training, but I knew at some point, once I became an SLP, I would also want to, um, then go into ABA, become a BCBA. Oh, amazing. The BCBA title was kind of, yeah, just kind of starting at that, around that time. So it wasn't popular. Wow. Yeah. So how long have you been duly certified then? Um, 20, I think 2013, I became duly certified. I worked for about five years versus an SLP. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. About me. I think I've been duly certified about 12. So around the same, around the same amount of time. It has been interesting to see the field grow. And even some of the local conferences that I go to used to just be like a single track conference here in Ohio, you know, where we'd have some important person come in and talk to us about ABA. And now they're just, it's like a whole conference. So it's it's been neat to see kind of the growth. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen that too. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on today because probably for the past two years, I've been getting a lot of questions about Gestalt language processing. Um, And I actually reached out to um, the person who put together the Meaningful Speech course two years ago. We talked on Instagram on Zoom and You know, she was like, she did say this. She said, you know, you're probably doing everything anyway from the course as far as like understanding that communication is valid for students that maybe use echolalia. And I really just wanted to see kind of what everybody was talking about, because if you're on social media, you know that this GLP has taken social media by absolute storm. And so it was interesting to kind of get in there. She let me in there for free just to kind of see what it was. It's a 10-hour course. It's really long. Um, and I felt like it was really complicated. So I'm excited to have you as an expert come on here um, today. I was going to do like a solo show about it. What I always do when people ask me questions about it is I always refer them to um, the Informed SLP's article on Gestalt. Um, I, I think that that is informative. It talks about what Gestalt is. It talks about, you know, that there's not a lot of research behind it, you know, what evidence is lacking and things like that. But that's, I'm excited to have our own little permanent product here today with this podcast to be able to share um, exactly what it is and, you know, kind of why we should be kind of leery of it, to be honest. I know you have a critique of it. So um, I do get a lot of questions about it. Can you describe what this means for listeners who may not be familiar? Like what is Gestalt language processing exactly? Sure. Yeah, and I wouldn't call myself an expert in the approach. I haven't done the approach, but I've definitely dealt. Like, I took the training. Um, I th- went through NSSNRS that that Marge oh. Block provides, and okay, uh, yeah. So I delved into it because I was like, like you, really interested. And like, oh, what yeah. what is this? Um, so what is Gestalt language processing? So, um, our traditional way of thinking of of language development is that we um, kids first learn to produce their first word, and then gradually they start to combine words and move towards producing sentences. In um, the theory of NLA, so natural language acquisition, which is a, a, a theory, um, the, the name was coined by Marge Blanc. Um, the idea is that there's these individuals who, rather than taking that approach that I described, go from initially learning longer utterances and then they they over time learn to break them down and 
initially produce their own words and then start to produce their own word combinations. Um, and so based on that idea, then there's also a protocol that comes from the NLA called the NLA protocol. And there's a lot of different stages. This is what I felt like it's kind of confusing because there's a lot of stages, like maybe six stages where, you know, is this person in this level or that level, at least in the meaningful speech course? It seemed kind of complicated yeah. and um, just seemed like a lot of information <laughs> to take in, you know? Um, and so, oh, the, oh, so that's interesting. So how long is that course? You Was it on Northern Speech? Is that where you it took was that on, course? Was, yeah, I, I think it was like 15 hours. Wow. Okay. I thought the course I took was 10 and it was a lot. Oh my gosh, 15 hours. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of information. Okay. So how long has GLP been around and why do you think, why do you think it's become so very popular? Yeah. So the, the term gestalt, um, gestalt language learning, um, or the term gestalt itself actually, and the comparison of gestalt with what we with the term analytic, analytic mm-hmm. describes more what we usually think of as language development. And again, with the initial words, which are put together into sentences later on. Um, so Dr. Ann Peters was the first one to make that distinction. Um, in 1977, she um, wrote, she she gathered some language samples with one of her, um, with the subject or, or a participant, mm-hmm. um, and then talked about how this child um, it was an infant initially, um, rather than producing single words, it was, was producing a lot of, or a large proportion of what he was producing were these longer utterances, some of which some of which didn't have words. So for example, for open the door, he would say, oh, ah, oh. And mm-hmm. so she posited that there maybe there's this other language learning approach um, where you learn gestalt first. But she didn't say that there's two that there's this major distinction. It was more of a continuum. So some people, Mm. larger proportions of their earlier language being um, single words, whereas others have larger proportions of their language um, early on being gestalt. So these longer utterances. So that's where at first that idea first came from. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, she didn't say that there are some people who are only, she she said there's a small proportion of people who maybe are only one of those, those two. Um, who, who are maybe only, you know, um, what we now call GLP or what what, what the NLA approach calls GLP. Uh, okay. Yeah, because that is the major difference. I mean, I always thought from what we do at ABA Speech, our mission is, you know, all autistic learners to help them find a voice. And I always talk about the kid who is hard to reach, <laughs> you know. So I, because there is these two distinctions that people that kind of subscribe to this theory where you're either an, what it seemed to me, and I could be wrong you're an analytic processor or you're a GLP. That's kind of what it seemed. Did it seem that way to you when you were taking the course too? Yeah. And um, so, you know, after Dr. Ann Peters, Dr. Prezant, Barry Prezant wrote an article and he had, he mentioned the four stages. So that's where that first came from. And he said in that article, this was an 83 article. He said he, he thinks that maybe all children or all people with autism or autistics, however you prefer, um, are GLPs. Um, yeah. So seems subjective. I mean, I guess all those theories, like I did look back in my um, Owens text. This is what I use for my language development yeah. coursework. And I just, I referenced that book when I put together the advanced language learner, which is this five hour course that we have in the ABA speech connection. And I was like, oh, you know, cause I don't remember learning about Skinner 
and his thoughts on language acquisition, but it was in the Owens text. There's a lot of different theories that you learn about. And I guess it's hard to understand like, well, how do we really, how do we really know that there's all these stages? And yeah, it seems subjective, but um, so I guess that leads into my next question is, is there evidence supporting Gestalt language processing? So, let's start with with Marge Blanc's work. So in 2012, she wrote a book where she um, put in a very extensive language sample she had taken throughout several years, I I believe over 10 years with with her clients. Um, And in the same book, she also describes procedures that she uses as part of the NLA protocol. Um, And so, but but this book is, you know, it's, it's descriptive. It doesn't give us a way to know whether what she did led to improvements in their speech because um, it wasn't experimental um, and it really wasn't terribly systematic in terms of like language samples were taken, but how do we know what else was being said at the beginning? You know, it wasn't that we were, she was taking the language samples at particular times. Um, So yeah, we, we, I look at that more as being anecdotal. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back, so, you know, when you ask people in the NLA world, what's the evidence? They'll say, well, there's tons. So they, they cite um, Ann Peters, Dr. Ann Peters. Yeah. A big problem with citing that is, first, Dr. Ann Peters doesn't, she, she mentions that there's these people who use the gestalts more often, people who use single words more often. But, and she does posit potential cognitive things that are going on for why they do that. Mm-hmm. She does also posit, though, that it has to do with potentially language input, like how people are talking to them. So it may not have anything to do with um, the individual's own cognitive processes. Mm-hmm. But also she herself says, we haven't done research yet on whether these processes occurred. So we're, we're seeing there's the observation that some people maybe produce more gestalts, mm-hmm. but we don't have any reason to think that that implies some other form of learning. And more, most importantly, we don't have any evidence showing, because Dr. Ann Peters didn't talk about intervention and either um, very present um, mentions the four stages, but doesn't talk about how those stages should affect intervention. So mm. none of those provide evidence okay. that the intervention has effectiveness or is effective. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And I know that she just, I know Marge just came out with something at ASHA. I don't know if you saw that. It's some type of paper, but I think it's yes, more descriptive, it was- right? Exactly. Yeah. So it was published in, I think, the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, one of, one of the ASHA journals. Yes. Um, and yeah, yeah so it, it describes the stages. It describes their thinking behind, you know, their rationale and 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 um, some of the intervention processes. Okay. But yeah, it's not um, based on a study. Yeah, I guess that's what makes me nervous. I spend an inordinate amount of time online. <laughs> Even though I have people that help me with my social media, I still so I need to put myself on a behavior plan. I am when I'm good, I'm doing that. Like I will not check my phone before 10 a.m. I don't know. But um <laughs> because there's just so much talk on, you know, people saying, well, we just need to forget everything that we learned in graduate school. And I'm like, do we? Do we need to forget everything that we ever learned? I just, I don't like that. I mean, I went to school and you did too for a really long time. And I feel like I've been doing this 20 years and it's really helpful. I think, especially because I'm a school-based speech therapist still two days a week. I just, my heart goes out to school-based therapists when they might pop on an Instagram post or something and they feel like they're not doing enough for their kids. If they need to throw away everything that they ever learned because this SLP influencer said that this is the way 
to do it. And I just think that that seems scary, especially because a lot of this information is descriptive, is more anecdotal. Um, So what do we do? Because this is probably, now it hasn't happened to me because it just hasn't happened to me. I don't see that many kids anymore for therapy because I'm doing things like this and trainings. But what should we do if we come across another professional or parent who says, my child is a gestalt processor? How do we, because I feel like this is probably happening to people in real life, depending on where you live, because this movement has a lot of people um, behind it. And I've talked to other moms who have autistic children and they are more ABA focused because, you know, I'm ABA focused and they will have a parent Facebook group and maybe there's like 50,000 people in their parent Facebook group. And they'll say, people are asking me about this all the time. So I guess, how do we, what do we say if somebody, you know, we have a kid and maybe we're going to be their speech therapist and, and the parent says, you know, my child's a gestalt processor. What do we say that is not like disrespectful to the parent? Because especially if you're in a school they're part of the team. <laughs> so their input matters. That's what's hard about being school-based. Um, how do we how do we navigate that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, patient autonomy is is super important. Yeah, whether you're school-based or wherever you're working. Um, and and part of that is empowering them with information. So um I would say, yeah, I know a lot of people are talking about that, and here's what they're thinking. And I would point them, I have this white paper that I wrote, so I might share that with them, I might share this podcast um, to give them the information as to why I I don't support it. Um, Mm -hmm. But then if they're still like, no, my child's a GLP, I might say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's table that. Okay. He's, he's, he or she is a GLP, but you know, knowing that doesn't really tell us what to do with your child. Um, Just like, you know, if we if we take the idea of some people are analytic learners, knowing that a child is an analytic learner also doesn't tell us what to do with the child. We figure out what to do to help somebody based on a very detailed assessment of their strengths and needs. Yeah, Um, yeah, I like that. I think what makes me leery, too, is I I think there's a whole Facebook group for GLP and AAC. And I know people and maybe I'm wrong on that, are putting gestalts on students' devices. And I feel like that could be, or I'm thinking of this like nightmare collaboration scenario where I'm sure, just hit me up and let me know if this is happening, everybody in the world, where maybe there's a speech therapist who is on the team and they are more trying to help the student find their voice. So maybe they're working on single words and then adding phrases. And then maybe another speech therapist that's on the team, school-based or, you know, clinician is saying, well, this person's a gestalt language processor. So we need to work on these gestalts, which is more like phrases, right? How do we, like, what is your, this seems like a collaboration nightmare. And then the the parent, you know, I don't know where the parent is all in all this, right? The parent just really wants their kid um to talk and to have purposeful communication, right? So how do we, because I'm sure that there's people that are dealing with these kind of nightmare collaboration scenarios, like, but you have a pretty critical view. Like you feel like, what is your view on that, I guess? On on AAC or more generally? I guess more general. If you, you know, if you're a parent and maybe the, the speech therapist you go to says, you know, this student is a gestalt processor, um, what are your thoughts on that? Can we work in this world collaboratively um, where somebody believes somebody is a gestalt processor and somebody is using more of a let's do an assessment, let's do this intervention? Because I know even BCBAs, which this blows my mind just because we're an ACE provider. So I'm always like sweating profusely when we do an ACE talk because I always have a slide in there that says 
this is how I'm going beyond the task list, you know, because I always think people, this is my own personal bias. I always think people think I'm not ABA enough because I'm a speech therapist and a BCBA. So I always have a slide in my deck that says, well, this is how we're going beyond the task list because that is what an ACE event is. But I swear I have seen graphics where BCBAs are putting on ACE events about Gestalt language processing. Yes. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. Um, and, and and doing it, like wanting to use it with their their right. Learners. And yeah, I that, just, that, yeah. that confuses yeah. me because I yeah. feel funny even doing like, I think it'd be cool to do a talk on apraxia, but I, a BCBA shouldn't just treat that alone. But do I think it's good for a BCBA to have knowledge about what it is? I do. But yeah. I wouldn't even probably do that as an ACE talk because it just makes me nervous from being a provider. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm a rule follower. You know, I'm a rule follower. So, I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that's kind of... Yeah, I think it, it it really surprised me when BCBA started getting into it. But I I think it's because um, we have the idea that SLPs are the language experts. Yeah. Um, and so if we're doing this, there must be some reason. And we as right. an SLPs. Um, but they're like, so I talked about the lack of research. But right. to me, an even, well, another big issue is the plausibility of it. It just what is done just doesn't make much sense. There's yeah. pieces of the NLA approach that, that makes sense that we all would, would respect and do. So um, you want to be very careful about really getting to know your client and, and what is their, mm-hmm. um, what they enjoy doing. Yeah. So we love doing preference assessments. That's very important. Um, and you can use um, physical support. So that means engaging them. Um, that's their word for engaging them in like sensory motor um, activities, which that that's great. Sensory um, yeah. joint action routine, but, but that includes sensory. Um, I think I just heard a timer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah outside of those pieces of it that are great there's some stuff that just doesn't make sense with a big one for me being that you're supposed to um try to assume that at most or at least most of the gestalt you're hearing or the scripts that you're hearing are communicative and the examples you see when you do the training it's very very clear that these children are not with these scripts being communicative. Certainly, echolalia can be communicative, and we yeah. should look for that. But trying to look for it in places where it's just so far-fetched, the problem with that is then sessions are spent talking to the kids about these things that, you know, one child said, um, it was from Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. And yeah. so the clinician then spoke to the child about his conscience, and that this was likely a child that didn't comprehend that right and so a lot of times getting wasted oh yeah so so it sounds like yeah this could be derailing an intervention plan an intervention yeah. plan that's backed by research that's going to help a student become a more independent robust communicator that that so I'm excited to do this podcast episode because I do think I actually just saw a really nice Instagram post from somebody <laughs> um who I think is a teacher but she was questioning GLP and had about 500 likes. It was just posted today, which I thought was inspiring because I do think that some people, it was just kind of like when Michelle Garcia Winter talked about social thinking. Part of us was like, oh, yeah, okay. Some of that makes sense. But when you look back on some of that stuff, like rock brain and just some of those things that you're like, oh, I don't know if that's really, is this evidence-based? You know, you have to question some of those things. So I know that we do, I love to, I've been doing more and more on the podcast, having people on that have actually 
written really recent journal articles because I I think that's what's so important. Although, and I do think it's going to be confusing for people that see that Asha has published these articles about Gestalt, like actually a BCBA that I'm um uh here in the Cleveland area sent me an echolalia. It was like I don't want to say it was research, but it was from one of the Asha research publications, and it was about echolalia and it had some information in it that was informative and then but it wasn't like a research study you know and i think sometimes people will see these things because it's officially been published and maybe think that that you know because as, as a speech therapist i wouldn't really know what is the highest form of a research article like an example is for asha like i wrote a perspectives article which is more clinician focused it was like this is a case study of a kid that wasn't talking in middle school and he had autism and you know we did the vb map and we worked collaboratively and then he started verbalizing and it was absolutely amazing but that was just kind of like my clinician account of course i used some references but i wasn't like in a lab or anything i wasn't like running a very controlled study and i think sometimes speech language pathologists don't really understand the difference between that kind of evidence because i don't know if you had that in your coursework but i didn't really learn about research and design until i took a class in my bcba program i mean we don't really cover that do we in our speech therapy programming weren't it Um, i don't know but i know some people like it's not their thing right but also like even though i've learned it I'll sometimes see like a quick headline and I don't know right. from what kind of study it is. And I only know if I go and like, look it up and like, right. Necessarily have time to do that. So no. Yes. Right. People don't have time to do that. They number one, don't have time to find the research. Number two, they don't have time to decipher like, is this a robust research model design? Yeah. So, so I think this type of information is really, you know, is really positive. So, um, I guess in a nutshell, if you had a speech therapist or a BCBA also that's listening um, and they're thinking like, do I need to dig on into the GLP and this this whole theory of language? What would your recommendation be for somebody that is is kind of questioning that? Um, yeah, I would say I think you're right to be questioning it. It's really important that we think critically and not, you know, not follow the crowd um, unless what we think, unless what the crowd is doing makes sense. Um, and I think with this, it really doesn't make sense. I think getting knowledgeable about it so that when parents ask you about it, you can explain what the GLP kind of group is saying and mm-hmm. also be able to refute why first it doesn't make sense and explain that currently there isn't evidence for it. Right. Right. That's good. Awesome. Um, Such good information today. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you and your work if they have a question? Um, So I have my website, although I think it's currently down, but (laughs) it'll be up. It'll be up maybe by the time this airs. It's um, www.actionpotentialservices.ca. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions. Am I allowed to give my email address? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's srisen.com. R-I-S-E-N. So S-R-I-S-E-N at actionpotentialservices.ca. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to connect. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.